This podcast contains our own personal views not associated with any organisation. Coronial contains descriptions of death inquests that may be graphic and disturbing to some listeners. Discretion is advised. Welcome back to Coronial. I'm Georgie. I'm Emma. And I'm Alice. So this is the case that implemented something called Ryan's Rule, which is a statewide policy in Queensland hospitals that has also now kind of been implemented similarly in other states around Australia as well. I've known about this one for a while. And so in terms of like the learning from coroner's cases, this is certainly one of those ones where significant things came out of it, which I want to discuss with you guys at the end about what you think and how you think that could be effective and stuff like that. Because for me... It's certainly got this strong point of really trying to enact change, but has it hit the outcome at once and that kind of thing as well, mm. which can be really hard when you're then having these reports and, and wanting to do the best to make change. So Ryan Charles Saunders was a almost three-year-old kid when he passed away in 2007. He was a three-year-old boy. He was otherwise well. He'd otherwise been immunized and loved by his family and his sister. So in September of 2007, a little before his third birthday, he came down with some sort of illness. His mum took him to the GP. GP said, oh, yeah, he's probably got mumps. Happy days. Just give him Panadol and Nurofen and he should get better. I'm going to quickly go over the fact that the coroner's report had a bit of a discussion about mumps being a pretty unlikely diagnosis because he'd had his measles, mumps and rubella vaccination that's really highly effective. But either way... The GP management was thought to be reasonable that in any three-year-old having fever and lethargy, treating with some pain relief and come back if things get worse is is not uncommon. And the coroner agreed with this. And so ultimately, a couple of days later, it's actually on the 24th of September, in the early hours of the morning, his mum was worried that Ryan was having agitation and pain and, and not sleeping and just inconsolable. And they actually lived in Emerald in the northern area of Queensland. And so got an ambulance to the Emerald Hospital. Ultimately, he was seen in the hospital uh, and his initial diagnosis was a lung infection for which he ended up having chest X-ray and bloods. And throughout this early morning hours, there was lots of reports of him being really unsettled, screaming, crying. So ultimately, there then became a worry about that being maybe coming from his tummy, causing pain there. And that's why I was screaming and crying. So... Had some investigations, got given some fluids because they thought he was dehydrated and remained admitted to the hospital because they were sufficiently worried about him. The next morning, because there was still ongoing pain and being unsettled, the doctors involved with his care had ongoing concerns about his tummy. Ultimately, their hospital at Emerald didn't have the possibility of doing an ultrasound. So they elected to have him transferred to the nearest hospital that might have that availability which is Rockhampton based hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask whether Emerald was a big hospital. No, it would or whether be. it's just it's regional. It's quite regional. It's quite, it's quite far inland, right? Quite, I'd say. In comparison to Rockhampton. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's on the same sort of level as Rockhampton, but it's quite far inland. Like mm. several. Hours. And the hospital itself is not as um, advanced as a. Well, it just a city's taller. Yeah. yeah. So, like, they wouldn't have a lot of those things, and especially after hours. Yeah. And really, he was admitted in the morning. And it may also be that he was a child. Maybe they didn't have the services for children. Yeah. True. 
but yeah, not entirely sure. Before he was transferred, he was given morphine. So a pretty strong pain <laughs> relief as well. So clearly he's in a lot of pain and the diagnosis still seemed very unclear because a lot of different things have been thrown around. We've got mumps at this point. We've got an, a respiratory infection or a pneumonia and we've got concerns about his, his abdomen as well. So then he was transferred across by ambulance and air. So it must have been fairly far away from Rockhampton. Yeah. Came to the ED and in the ED he was given more really strong pain relief, fentanyl this time, and then eventually admitted to the paediatric ward. So over the next, I think it was about 20 hours in the paediatric ward, things continued to deteriorate. He continued to become quite unwell. And again, the diagnosis was still really confusing. So they went through a number of different things. Despite the fact that Emerald Hospital had been concerned about his abdomen on arrival to Rockhampton, they were worried that he actually had meningitis, so infection around the brain. Mm -hmm. And so they did some investigations for that. One of those investigations was a lumbar puncture. So ultimately, a needle inserted in the back to collect the fluid around the brain to check if there's infection. And at this point, the coroner sort of made the mention that no other investigations for infection had been specifically completed, nor antibiotics started. And this is where things become quite contentious around checking for a significant infection mm. and then not otherwise enacting treatment for that, which became one of the big points around this case. After doing that lumbar puncture, the doctors noted the results of that, which suggested there wasn't any meningitis, mm -hmm. but at no point did they communicate that to the parents overnight, nor did anyone come back to see him until 9am the next morning. Despite him being reported by the nursing staff to have been extremely irritable all night, crying, and the parents also confirmed this at the inquest. The next day, again, he was reviewed. At this point, they said, okay, not meningitis, but he's still in pain. And he was examined this time to be in pain all over, not even just his abdomen. But ultimately, they decided to continue down the abdomen pathway. Yep. Continue down that being the source. So in more investigations, another abdominal x-ray that he'd already had, which was normal. And this time they had an ultrasound ordered, which was delayed due to availability of, of staffing and resources. But along with that, his ongoing pain... Nursing staff then requested, well, can we give him some stronger pain relief? The senior doctor involved decided that strong pain relief shouldn't be used. And it seems like this was a combination of him being unaware that he'd had strong pain relief prior to coming to Rockhampton Hospital, mm. but also he justified in the coroner's inquest not administering stronger pain relief because he was concerned it would mask the symptoms, mm. which is kind of an old school way of thinking about things. And were they paper records that were coming from Emerald or were they digital? Like, was there a way to... So this is in 2007, so it was probably pre-digital. There should have been a transferred letter and medical chart that should have gone there. I think that was said that that had come in the coroner's report, but that the senior doctor relied on the junior doctor's explanation of the situation rather than directly right. reviewing them himself. Basically, along that day, those investigations were pretty unremarkable to the point where he was recommended to have a CT scan. So again, just another level of scan looking for more issues with the abdomen. But along this point, one of the junior doctors then was concerned that he in fact had an infection and questioned whether further bloods needed to be done to look for infections. And in the coroner's report, they used the word toxic workup. Would they, to look for an infection, yeah, they'd do bloods, would they do any sort of culture and sensitivity at any yeah. point from it? Yeah. Like if they were suspecting a lung infection, should they have done... Yeah, so like that's actually swab and what the junior doctor was working towards was toxic workup. So the things mm. that 
were recommended were a blood culture, yep. looking for infection, and a CRP, a C-reactive protein, which is another infection marker. Yep. And when the CT scan happened, one of the junior doctors ultimately needed to put a drip in to have contrast to the CT scan yep. and took those that toxic workup. And the statements provided by the junior doctor and the senior doctor are conflicting in that statement in terms of whose initiative it was to to complete those along the way. On the return from the CT scan, again, the nursing staff requested for a morphine use. And ultimately, at this point, the senior doctor did allow one single dose Mm -hmm. to have pain relief. This is almost 24 hours after arriving to Rockhampton Hospital was given a single dose of morphine other than Panadol and Nurofen. And was quite painful that whole time, like wasn't sleeping. Yeah, so in quite a bit of pain. And at this point, they're starting to think he's really significantly unwell Mm. to be in that much pain. Things are really not right. Ultimately, that CRP came back. So the blood culture takes longer to process, Mm. but the CRP came back after his return from CT. Actually, took a little bit of time before they got that result and it came back at 444. And what um, is the upper limit so generally for a normal person? The upper limit on the pathology system says less than five, but that's not entirely indicative of a serious infection greater than five. Mm-hmm. But the direct quote from the coroners is, such a very high CRP figure indicates bacterial rather than viral infection. Yep which it seems like prior to this, they'd all be concerned that this was a viral infection yep. that he'd get over rather than a bacterial that needed antibiotics. Yep. Mm. So he started on antibiotics. He was given fluid and then he was ordered regular pain relief of morphine. Yep. And the surgeons were requested to see if the infection was coming from a surgical source. But unfortunately with that commencing at 5.30 in the evening, Ryan was un- so unwell with his overwhelming infection that even with the commencement of antibiotics at that stage, he continued to be in so much pain and continued to deteriorate across the rest of the evening that the decision was made for him to actually need to go to Brisbane, to an even bigger facility, mm-hmm. an even more specialised paediatric centre. And that decision was made overnight? It was seemed to have been made late in the afternoon. The daytime senior doctor had changed over to being a new senior doctor for the overnight shift. It had been a change in shift to new evening doctors as well. At that point in time, the way that patient movement across the state was determined was slightly different and ultimately things are a bit more streamlined now. A intensive care doctor was sent from the Royal Brisbane Children's Hospital out to Rockhampton to pick him up. Now, they called at around 8 p.m. and the doctor didn't arrive out there till 10.45. So it was a significant time frame there. But by the time that that doctor arrived, Ryan was unresponsive, only responding to pain, mm-hmm. laboured uncoordinated breathing, which is not uncommon in the very end stage of life. Right. And following trying to intubate him, he arrested and after 45 minutes of CPR and significant resuscitation attempts, he was declared deceased. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Ryan's father and grandfather that had been with him at Rockhampton Hospital had started their drive to Brisbane Uh, because they were going to meet him there in Brisbane and had to be called to return back to him after that event mm-hmm. because he never left Rockhampton. So that's the other just absolutely devastating thing that I can't even imagine yeah. how his father was able to deal with that 
being halfway, well, not halfway to Brisbane, being two hours away from where his son had just died. Ryan was found to have had group A streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, a bacterial infection that gave him such overwhelming symptoms and can be associated with such overwhelming pain that mm. it can be difficult to diagnose. And really it was a difficult diagnosis to make in terms of his symptoms, according to the coroner, were not typical and typically obvious, so understandable that it took them time to establish what was actually happening to him. Mm. And what was, sorry, what was the diagnosis again? Group A streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. So not only was it an overwhelming infection in his bloodstream, mm. but it had an extra element of toxic shock, which um, means that your body just goes, you know, is in overdrive and caused all that pain, that that portion of him screaming out overnight, being in uncontrollable pain, being unable to sleep, being an added symptom on top of just having a bacterial infection. Right. So the bacterial infection caused the toxic shock? Yes. Okay. Is that kind of like sepsis? Sepsis is the overwhelming infection part of it. The toxic shock syndrome okay. is on top of that. Okay. And so not everyone who has an infection will get, obviously, will get toxic shock syndrome. No. The things that became really contentious in this case ended up being both his pain relief and the use of antibiotics. And mm. the expert witnesses used in this uh, coroner's case very much made the suggestion that a septic workup should have been considered much earlier. They were saying that really the blood culture and the CRP that you mentioned should have been taken at the time that the lumbar puncture was taken because yep. if you're looking for an infection around the brain, then you should be considering other infections or looking for other markers. In terms of whether antibiotics should have been administered at that point was a little less clear between the expert witnesses, but essentially if you'd had that early infection marker of a CRP, you probably then would have been giving the antibiotics. So, yeah, hard to tell. And, like, antibiotics are hard because you don't want to be encouraging antibiotic resistance. Yeah. But also covering with antibiotics is yeah. it's going to be helpful in that situation. Like, early intervention with antibiotics possibly could have changed the outcome. But if there's no indication for them, then... Yeah, and so it's, it's this really hard divide of, like, if you think it's a virus, then you ideally don't want to be giving yeah. antibiotics at least a resistance, but, you know, if you've got a sick enough individual, should you be giving them early because the benefit outweighs the risk? Yeah. It's, it's such a hard decision to make. And so the coroner said in his view, despite urging from a number of junior doctors to order such tests, the senior doctor repeatedly made a serious error of judgment when he declined to do so. Mm. Um, so those series of tests being the, the infection tests. And so hence the senior doctor was referred to the Medical Board of Australia for review. And this was through the Healthcare Complaints Commission. But he was referred because of his failure to review Ryan after the abnormal blood test. So he never came back after that really high blood test. His failure to communicate adequately with the parents, which again was an overarching issue repeatedly stated by them in the coroner's inquest. And his failure to hand over to the senior doctor that then took over that care of that evening. Nowhere in that referral to the medical board was related to his failure to order those tests and that kind of thing. 
However, the medical board didn't find any grounds for disciplinary action against the senior doctor. I think that's a really interesting point. The medical board is there not to punish and not to have punitive outcomes and, and affect people's livelihoods and professions. It's there to look into safety and hence the coroner's case has done that and it's made its recommendations. And so that one individual on that one day making that one decision shouldn't necessarily represent their whole life. And I don't think the coroner's case captures enough of what else is happening on that day. What else led yeah. to that decision? What other reasons? Had the senior doctor had some other element of reasons behind that don't seem to have come out as clearly? And how overworked were they at the time? Yeah. How many patients were they looking after at the time? With So, yeah, no it, was, it was mentioned. He was the director of the department. He was doing administrative duties along with his full-time work in a department that actually had more patients admitted to the ward than they were currently budgeted or allocated. Yeah. So, so they didn't have the resources for that yeah, many people. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's really hard. Whilst I can see the expert witnesses saying, cool, when we read this story, this is probably what we would have done. Yeah. It's a learning point to say, okay, cool. You know, in a perfect world, next time I'll do that. Yeah. Next time I'll learn. Yeah, that's right. I totally appreciate the point about the medical board not imposing anything. And I wouldn't agree if they sort of stripped him of his license. I think that would be way too harsh. But I appreciate mistakes happen. And in the medical field, I think they just get highlighted more than any other field. I mean, if I make a mistake in my job, there's really no ramification. But if a medical professional makes a mistake in their job, you know, it goes under the microscope like this one does. So I do appreciate that as well. Yeah. It's just striking that balance. But again, the initial review was with regards to his communication and reviewing of the patient and not actually with regards to the decisions he made. Yeah. But when the coroner then stated, well, okay, this is the, you've already investigated this senior doctor once. Now that you've got all this information from the coroners, would you be interested in having a look at him again? Mm -hmm. They again elected not to. They again elected to say, we're happy with the outcome that we've made. And we've got to trust them to to make those decisions to keep the public safe. That's what they're there for. So the second other contentious part that runs into my reason why I find this case so interesting is the fact that there was significant concern from his parents about his pain management. The coroner said he did not accept the likely benefits of withholding pain relief justified the suffering it caused for Ryan. Yeah. That not giving adequate pain relief was appropriate because of the worry about the diagnosis. The whole way through this case, the diagnosis was never really clear. So holding pain relief, it's hard to see what change that would have made in terms of finding that diagnosis. Ultimately, Ryan's parents campaigned to establish Ryan's rule. And Ryan's rule was established in 2013, and it's essentially a escalation plan for parents, families, and carers in hospitals of any patient. So they can be child or adult. Yeah. That allows families to say, I know that you're looking after my child. I know that you are doing your best to, to treat them and manage them, but something has changed. And I'm worried that there's a deterioration and I would like them to be reviewed again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it triggers an independent review so that therefore the risk of reducing biases from the same person coming back to review. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. Is it a review by the same person or is it a review by someone completely Yeah, separate? an independent. So that families have that ability to step up and say, you can get a second opinion in that moment. Yeah. If you imagine your relative in hospital, who's the person who knows them best? 
you're their treating doctor, especially for a child, you know, yeah. what your child's normal is. Yeah. And so it is a nice thing to know that that's available. But I guess the worry is... I can a, see where it can go wrong. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, And in theory, it's meant to go through steps as well. You're meant to start by raising your concerns with the medical team that's looking after the individual. And then if that doesn't work out, you're meant to then raise it to the team leaders of the ward that the person's on to, mm. again, see if you can work the situation out. Mm. Then if things don't get better, then you can enact this independent review of Orion's rule. But, you know, it's meant to be for deterioration. It's meant to be for medical concern. But I, I worry. Yeah, what if it's just because I don't like your opinion? Yeah. How you want to treat me, so I'm going to call Orion's rule. Yeah, exactly. And try and find another opinion that's going to fit what I want. Yeah. And that- see how it's going to be manipulated. I was going to ask, like, how widely was this advertised? Because I feel like I've heard of it peripherally, but I never really knew anything about it. As a patient is admitted to a Queensland state hospital, they should be handed a brochure and informed of their right to escalate their care within their hospital stay. Mm. And is that just public hospitals or is mm-hmm. that also private hospitals? It's a statewide service, so maybe that means that it's a Queensland health initiative. Yeah, I would assume a private hospital would have something similar in place where if you had any concerns, you could take it. Yeah, it's fairly common to be yeah. across most hospitals now because they want to make sure that their consumer has a way to explore their safety. Yeah. So is it actually a law or is it just an initiative? I think yeah. it's probably more of a soft regulation rather than a hard legislation. Other states have now done similarly with the Ryan's Rule, but with various other names, Reach in New South Wales, Compass in ACT, but it varies state to state whether that's a statewide initiative or just a hospital initiative or health service. But yeah, that's... That's Ryan's rule in a gist and um, I don't know, this one always stood out for me in terms of like, as you said, something amazing came out of it, a way for families to escalate their worries and and work with clinicians to voice when they're worried about their family members, but so sad to have arisen from. Mm, yeah, and unfortunately that's, you know, often the case. It's hard to sort of proactively preempt these sorts of things, but good there's something good came out of what happened to Ryan and it I think sounds like it's at least been utilised in the Queensland healthcare system, which is a great outcome. Yeah, it would be interesting to see sort of how it's applied and how it's used into the future. When they've done research about it for various different things, like it's it's not necessarily being used for clinical deterioration, although that is one, but other things that it's found to be used for is communication errors concerns with regards to care and and errors alone so whilst it's designed to be only if you're like okay I think my family member is acutely deteriorating I'd like for someone to you know come and review them pretty urgently sometimes just because the doctor hasn't communicated effectively Mm. or the person's concerned about the level of care that they're receiving and so wanting to have different or escalated care which may not necessarily be related to clinical deterioration and so can be used differently to how it's intended mm. and that's the other thing that it's really hard to tell with the initiation of this of are you looking to make sure that the outcome is improvement in patient condition or improvement in family satisfaction that's yeah because right. they're two sometimes two different things absolutely so it's it's really interesting as to um how this initiative 
works, but I think it's important in terms of having families feel like there is a way to escalate because if you don't have that mechanism, then it can be really difficult to get that communication out there from the family side. Do you know if it's reported on at all? Like, are there, is, is there any sort of report on how many people have invoked Ryan's rule and whether it changed the outcome? Yeah, so I read a couple of studies that have looked into the outcomes and that's what I was talking about, the reasons that calls have occurred being sometimes for communication breakdown and that kind yeah. of stuff. And those reports were published in emergency medicine journals and it did suggest that it's more widely thought to be positive by families yeah. versus sometimes clinicians worry it's just a complaint mechanism Yeah, and that that is seen a bit more negatively by the physicians because they worry that it's just going to be a way for a family to escalate because is it just a way that they want to get a second opinion because mm. they don't agree with their initial doctor's thoughts. But I don't think that's necessarily the right view to have because families should have their right to, mm. to escalate. But audits on outcomes are, are quite difficult to do because, again, as I mentioned before, like the whose perception of benefit and outcome are you auditing? Is it the clinician thinking that the patient has improved? Is it the family thinking the patient has improved? Is it the family being satisfied that they've now had increased clinical communication and that's actually what they needed out of it Yeah. rather than worry about the clinical deterioration? But Yeah, I'd, I would like to think that two separate medical opinions would be roughly similar, you would hope, in terms of what you should be generally looking for and it's hard the hard though because yeah, I mean, it's all individual circumstances not like, like in Ryan's case he had several doctors looking after him mm. from his GP to two different hospitals and even then it was still they all sort of came to a dark conclusion well yeah the diagnosis was still unknown at the time of his death it was still unclear because he, his symptoms were so atypical mm hmm I guess I had a question about the use of this, particularly the Queensland-based one, in sort of regional and remote hospitals like Emerald, which I assume is, you know, quite a small, remote-located town with not much going on and, you know, probably fairly few doctors in the hospital. What if it is the case where you're wanting to enact Ryan's rule and there's sort of not a second opinion around the place to be had. Is it something that you can do sort of via the phone or? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. In Queensland, you ring a state-based service, 13 Health. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. Yes. So I wonder whether it ends up being a telehealth-based service, which again, like how can that be enacted for certain various issues? I'm not sure, but we do have really great telehealth services available now. I mean, since Corona, we all know that apparently you can do anything via a video screen. So many people are doing their jobs now uh, yeah, from home. So maybe that means that they do have really good availability. But yeah, I agree. Like, you know, if there's only one person with that specialty available, how do you yeah. get your second opinion? I'm not sure. And my other question here is like, well, when you're talking about independent review, how independent is it if it's two consultants working in the same hospital that work together every single day? Yeah, yeah. they might even have, or even just like hospital protocol. Yeah, yeah, it is the same for both of them because they work in the same hospital. Whereas yeah. a separate, a different hospital might have slightly different protocols of we do this first. Yeah, and so it not be. It can be really hard to be that independent person as well. I imagine because 
they're having to come along. What if they want to contradict their colleague? How uncomfortable a position does that yeah, put them Exactly. In? Imagine being the independent reviewer who, and speaking up against your boss or something. Yeah. Being like, I disagree with your diagnosis. Yeah, like you'd like to hope they would be anonymous. But, but also, how could you be anonymous? So they're medically obligated that to patient. write notes in the patient yeah, charts that they can't be anonymous because they have to document that they have reviewed the patient. Yeah. I had a question about the decision to fly Ryan to Rockhampton instead of just going directly to Brisbane. Yeah, so the coroner did make a point of that. That So it was the understanding that Emerald was transferring Ryan to Rockhampton for an ultrasound. And that ultrasound, they'd actually mentioned looking for something called intersusception, which is where your bow telescopes let itself. Have like slides back through. Yeah. Yeah, it happens to cats who swallow string. So the coroner made the point that the plan was to go for an ultrasound for intersusception. But it was never made clear to Emerald that if the ultrasound did show intersusception, that was actually something that Rockhampton couldn't manage. Interesting. Right. So they might um, not have known that even if they found it, they couldn't do anything about it. And so there was a question around, well, Rockhampton, why did you accept this child? Or why were they not transferred? And it seems like the system was a little different in 2007 in terms of how those arrangements were made. And now there's a statewide service. And so if that kind of issue came up, typically that statewide service would now ask, is that something that you can manage if that outcome were the case? And it just seems like Emerald wasn't aware and Rockhampton were happy to just do the ultrasound and then go from there because they were thinking, oh, it's probably unlikely to be intersusception. And so they were happy to accept that care. And so with the new statewide service, it'd probably be filtered through and say, oh, okay, well, if it were that, then maybe you do need to come to Brisbane. But the other thing is sometimes services don't allow that in terms of sometimes, okay, cool, if they are worried about intersusception and there's no place in Brisbane for them, what's the better or worse thing? Going to Rockhampton and and having that ultrasound and not finding intersusception and having the continued workup mm. there versus if there was no place for them to go in Brisbane. If Brisbane's extremely busy, you've transferred them all the way to Brisbane and then it's not an intersusception, well, then they could have been managed at Rockhampton. So it's, it's also yeah. one of those things where, you know, you're never going to know which is the right ultimate decision. But it was mentioned that maybe they should have gone straight to Brisbane. Maybe that should have been made clearer that they couldn't manage intersusception. But it seems like that was something that they assumed they could manage. From Emerald. And is that state-wide service, do they know what each hospital is capable of? Like, is there sort of now a register of this hospital has these XYZ resources available? And so you can immediately cross someone off the list of, they don't have like an ultrasound yeah, Emerald, I, so we can't go there. So where's the next? I don't know if there is a register. It's just that it's facilitated as like a three-way phone call, including mm. the statewide service and the hospitals involved. Right. And that facilitator will often go through, well, okay, what's available? Is this something that's going to be appropriate? Yep. Having that extra independent person from that coordination service who, again, may know because they've dealt with those hospitals before mm. anyway, mm. but also facilitate that conversation. And is this coordination service, is that something that's quite recent? I wonder if it's something that was enacted following. It doesn't appear to be a recommendation. So there, there were a number of recommendations. doesn't look like the transfer situation was part of it. But there were 15 recommendations made from this one. And normally I remember mm. them having sort of, you know, like maybe five to 10. So 15 yeah. was pretty reasonable. The pathology result, remember me talking about that CRP being mm-hmm. 400. Mm. They requested an escalation of that from the pathology service that when you hit that really critical result, that you should actually be phoning that result through to 
an individual rather than just uploading it to an electronic system for someone to check waiting for in four hours, you know. So that was really important. With the CT scan, there were some delays in reporting that for Ryan because of communication and that really Swiss cheese model of just certain steps not quite going as planned and, and resulting in a significant delay. So they aim to increase Rockhampton's radiology service. They also introduced a child early warning test, which is known as the CUTE score. And it works like a between the flags charts that are based on the age group and having a red suggesting these numbers are really abnormal, a yellow suggesting that these numbers are slightly outside of normal range, and then a white bar representing that these are normal for this age group. So that when you plot it on that chart, it becomes really obvious. Because if you just get a child heart rate of 160, is that normal for for that age group or not? Mm. Versus if it's sitting in the red because it's outrageously high, that's much more visually easy to understand. Mm. And so that wasn't something that yeah. was around at the time that Ryan... And is that when you've got a digital record and you're entering in that heart rate into that field, then flags it as... Yeah. So they have both paper and digital mechanisms of it. Okay. And it also then shows a trend because if you start on the left-hand side and then you do your OBS across the day to the right. So then if you see that heart rate actually started out at 100 and it's slowly trending up, Mm -hmm. that's a suggestion as well that things are changing versus just a one-off number as well. Yep. And then telehealth services for rural and remote healthcare, Mm -hmm. which, as you said, Emerald calling Brisbane straight up, have changed this outcome. Yeah, even just for a second opinion on, hey, we have this case. Yeah, this is what we talked to you about it. Yeah, is that going to be appropriate? Yeah, yeah, that was a recommendation. So yeah, guys, that was Ryan's rule and what happened to Ryan. I'm glad the ability to make something good of this case happened. I think it's good that he can have an ongoing legacy. Absolutely. In that his family has that, that, you know, his impact on Australia is that hopefully this doesn't happen to other children or other patients and that there are now processes in place where you can get that second opinion. You can get a review of your case if things aren't going well. And I just think that's great for his family to be able to have something good come from this. Yeah, it's probably quite comforting to his family as well that, you know, his death means something. It just wasn't for nothing. It's actually gone on to mean something and to help other people. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for listening and chatting with me about this case. It's one of my favourites, if that's a thing that you can have for coroner's cases. Thanks. It's been a good chat. Mm. Learned a lot. Cool. Well, we'll uh, see you next week. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.